Welcome to the Griffith in Asia podcast. Today's seminar is presented by Professor Andrew O'Neill, Head of the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. His topic, Less Geneva, More Jakarta, Assessing Australia's Asia Pivot. So why am I talking on this topic? Well, I got a phone call from Professor Gil Rosman, who's based at Princeton, who runs the ASEAN Forum online. And he said, look, I'd really like you to write something on Australia's pivot to Asia. And I sort of sat back in my chair and I said, what pivot? This is, well, the turn back towards Asia. It's kind of emulating what the US is doing. And Gil got me thinking because we often don't think about, well, we certainly don't use that terminology when we think about how Australia's engaging with the region. But as I'll argue, there has been certainly since the Gillard government circa 2011 uh, with the announcement of the White Paper on Australia in the Asian Century, a kind of definite shift back to, to the region. And I'm going to try and build on some of these themes as I prepare for a, a presentation to the Asia Society, uh, a lecture later this year. And I guess really one of the things I'm interested in in this presentation is the question of whether more engagement is necessarily better engagement. We often focus on the quantity of diplomacy that a country transacts uh, in terms of its daily business, but what about the quality of it? And I, I guess I want to put forward today that um, while there's been a lot of engagement in terms of quantity, the quality, I think, is, is perhaps slightly less than uh, certainly the current government would have liked. And when does a pivot become a pirouette? And again, that's a theme I want to build on at the conclusion of the presentation Day. And to me, that kind of relates to the quality or quantity um, uh, distinction. One of the other interesting things for me is um, bipartisanship. There is a, a definite orthodoxy in the literature on Australian foreign policy that essentially Australian foreign policy is bipartisan. Okay? There might be a bit of change in emphasis occasionally, but, but very rarely is there a change in direction. And I think by and large that's true. But what has surprised me looking... Um, at some of the um, historical uh, comparisons, certainly, between uh, how coalition governments and Labor governments have approached the region, is I actually do think there is a substantial difference. Coalition governments are much more focused on bilateral relationships. They're more sceptical about multilateral institutions. Labor governments, on the other hand, uh, frankly, have had much less, less success than coalition governments in achieving things in the region, including in multilateral forums. And historically, Labor, of course, has been much more focused on global multilateral forums, in particular the United Nations and its associated organs. And I think we see this in, you know, historically, uh, one of Percy Spender's first remarks to his leadership rival, in fact, Robert Menzies, when he took over as external affairs minister uh, in 1949, was that, I'm not going to do whatever it did. I'm going to focus on our region our backyard. I'm not interested particularly in the United Nations, which kind of dovetails neatly, I think, with a conservative tradition about scepticism towards the United Nations. I'm going to focus much more on our region. And I think we also saw this when the Howard government came to power in 96. And the white paper on foreign policy and trade was very much focused on how we better engage the region. And again, this emphasis on economic diplomacy, much more clear, if you like, under, under, co under coalition governments. And of course Downer's view was very much that well, while Evans had been off kind of globetrotting around the world rehearsing his speech when he becomes UN Secretary General, we're focused much more on core business. And core business for us is in our region. That's where the economic flows are, that's where the trade and FDI flows are, that's where our security 
uh, will be determined. Our geography is our destiny. So what surprised me, thinking through some of these issues again, uh, certainly in the context of the Abbott government, is um, that we, we can't take bipartisanship as a kind of given. And that orthodoxy in the literature, I think, needs certainly to, certainly to be challenged. Now, as, as we know, the Obama administration announced uh, a US pivot back to Asia in 2011. And this occurred in a context where many allies in the region were perceiving that the US had uh, become excessively preoccupied with the Middle East. Um, adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, had, had diverted the United States. And it was around this time, uh, certainly under the Bush administration, where a perception had grown that China had made significant diplomatic inroads, and particularly in relation to soft power, in the region at the expense of US influence. A kind of ASEAN passing where Condoleezza Rice would send her deputy, uh, Bob Zelleck, to ASEAN meetings to deputise in her absence was not a good look in the region. And after a period where the Obama administration had sought to define and execute an exit strategy from Afghanistan, really between 2008 and 2010, um, Hillary Clinton in 2011 wrote a very influential article in uh, the US magazine Foreign Policy. She conceded that, quote, in Asia, they ask whether we are really there to stay, whether we are likely to be distracted by events elsewhere, whether we can make and keep credible economic and strategic commitments, and whether we can back those commitments with action, unquote. Now, of course, this is further reinforced by President Obama's speech to the Australian Parliament in November 2011, where he outlined the essential thrust of the pivot. The pivot would entail a deeper commitment to economic and political relationships in the region, as well as assuring allies, or reassuring allies, that the US would fulfil its security commitments into the future. And essentially this was set up, if you watch this speech, this is very much set up as, well, OK, we've taken our eye off the ball in the region, China's made inroads, but boy, are we back. And it's not just about sending a few aircraft carriers um, through, through the East China Sea. This is about uh, full-spectrum economic, political and strategic re-engagement. Re and the language of Obama was very direct. The United States is a Pacific power. We are here to stay, quote-unquote. Now, while much attention has been devoted to analysing the consequences of the US pivot to Asia, or it's recently been redefined as the rebalance, Australia has sought to define something of its own regional pivot in recent times. One month before Hillary Clinton's foreign policy article in September 2011, uh, the Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard, as I said, announced that her government was commissioning a white paper on Australia and the Asian century. When the white paper was released in October 2012, it painted a linear path of economic growth for the region and argued that Australia could exert considerable influence as a middle power to achieve core economic and political goals. But a major shortcoming of the report, as many commentators pointed out, was its refusal to engage seriously with the question of the additional resources required to enhance diplomatic reach in an era where the budget of Australia's foreign ministry was dropping, Asian literacy in schools had stalled, some would argue it stalled a long time ago, and defence spending, often seen as a, uh, an indication or a proxy for the capacity of a state to project power, was declining in real terms. 
When the Abbott government came to power in September 2013, one of the standout slogans, as Russell alluded to earlier, uh, in the electoral campaign was that in foreign policy terms, Australia needed less Geneva and more Jakarta. I might say as an aside that both parties domestically were practising probably less Ligon Street and more Rooty Hill RSL. International observers may have been forgiven for thinking this was kind of weird, this was a bit odd, given that the previous government, that is the Gillard government, had attempted to reboot Australia's Asian engagement uh, through, the Australia, uh, through the white paper that I've already talked about. Yet the slogan sought to convey, as most political slogans do, the clear message that the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments had over-invested Australia's precious diplomatic resources in international organisations and under-invested in the Asia-Pacific. This dovetailed with the argument that the Labor government had lost sight of Australia's economic and strategic priorities in its own region in pursuit of a more abstract recognition uh, on the world diplomatic stage. Again, as I say, quite a common theme in uh, the history of coalition um, uh, foreign policy. Australia's victory in October 2012 in securing a two-year non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council met with an ambivalent response from the then opposition leader Tony Abbott and his foreign affairs spokesperson Julie Bishop. Abbott and Bishop had been critical of the extent to which Australia had fated African leaders in particular with large-scale aid and investment commitments during the Security Council campaign. Uh, somewhat ironically, although the Abbott government uh, shelved the Australia in the Asian Century white paper on coming to power, Julie Bishop had echoed, in fact endorsed, the report's central theme of economic engagement three months previously. So a lot of the uh, coalition's rhetoric and opposition was about the importance of economic engagement in the region, facilitating closer FDI and trade links with key partners in uh, in the Asia-Pacific. And that kind of made sense um, if you look at these tables. When we look at where Australia's trade flows are, both inward, uh, actually this is outward, sorry, outward uh, trade flows, I mean trade uh, accounts roughly for uh, $630 billion a year, both inward and outward, both exports and imports. Most of our imports clearly, almost three quarters, go to East Asia. So it, it stands to reason that when you're talking about economic diplomacy, the primary focus of that will be in the Asia-Pacific. More specifically, uh, a lot of the underlying implication was that Northeast Asia is the critical uh, sub-region. Okay? So just over 50%, maybe 55% of all Australia's exports go to Northeast Asia. Southeast Asia actually accounts for a very small part of that. And when we look at... Uh, right, see this very well, but when we do look at some of these charts, what's interesting there is that um, China is kind of well out in front in terms of exports. Exports uh, per unit, of course, account uh, a lot more in terms of national income for Australia than inward foreign direct investment. So, so exports are really key, they're central to taking the temperature of how engaged a country is economically with the region around it. So China accounts for one-sixth of Australia's uh, total exports. In terms of two-way trade, China's up at around one-fifth. So 20% of all of Australia's trade is transacted with, with China. And as we can see, Japan, the Republic of Korea, uh, the US, and then India kind of trailing uh, a little bit down, down the list. 
in terms of the sorts of things we export, well, you know, it's stuff we dig up, right? That's what we export, essentially. And, and most of it's iron ore, uh, followed by coal. Uh, education actually comes in at number three. Uh, and increasingly, when you look at Australia's economic engagement with Asia, a lot of it is built around uh, education. So another chart which you will not be able to see, but which illustrates that in terms of foreign direct investment, the UK and the US account for roughly about 40% of all inward foreign direct investment into Australia. Asia comes in with Japan that accounts for around about 11%. Um, and then there's daylight. And then there's the Netherlands, Singapore, Switzerland, Canada. So in the inward foreign direct direct investment area, it's a little bit mixed in terms of the importance of Asia. But as I say, trade is the primary level of analysis for those looking to take the temperature of how engaged Australia is in economic terms in, in the region. Now, along with Japan, China and Indo uh, sorry, along with Japan, China and Indonesia are the most important countries in Asia for Australia. Many, of course, would dispute that call and perhaps we can have a bit of a discussion about that in Q&A. But really, these are the big three that Australia puts most of its efforts into uh, engaging bilaterally. Indeed, in physical terms, the Australian Embassy in Jakarta is now uh, the country's single biggest overseas post. While India continues to grow in significance for Australia, and notwithstanding occasional references to the Indo-Pacific, although I notice that's kind of dropped off a bit in recent times, economic and strategic ties with India remain underdeveloped, it's fair to say. Australia still plays an active role in multilateral institutions, uh, APEC, of course, and ASEAN. Uh, Australia's a formal dialogue partner in ASEAN are the standouts, but increasingly the focus has been on bilateral relations. And the G20 has tended to overshadow the role of APEC, um, while ASEAN's appetite for driving regional security and economic reform has dissipated. The preference for bilateralism over multilateralism in dealing with the region has traditionally uh, been stronger under coalition governments, as I say, and the Abbott government is no exception to this historical rule. Having been in office for one and a half years, the Abbott government has encountered mixed success in its efforts to reboot Australia's economic, uh, sorry, Australia's engagement with Asia. This can be appreciated, I think, by examining in a bit more detail, hopefully not too much, but a bit more detail of how Australia has been interacting bilaterally with China, Indonesia and Japan uh, since September uh, 20, uh, 2013. Now, in 2013, before uh, the Abbott government came to power uh, under, under Julia Gillard, Australia and China concluded a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement. Now, this was vaunted by the Gillard Labor government as signalling a watershed in the bilateral relationship with Beijing. While the strategic partnership did not, of course, constitute a security agreement, and as one US embassy official said to me, China has hundreds of these. Australia's not very important, actually. While it didn't constitute a security agreement, for supporters of closer ties between Beijing and Canberra, it represented a major step forward. It enshrined annual uh, meetings as a requirement, or certainly as, as part of the uh, strategic partnership agreement between the two heads of government. It enshrined uh, a commitment for the foreign ministers to meet uh, a strategic and foreign policy dialogue uh, once a year. And it also followed up uh, a currency swap deal between the two countries in April that year. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because China's only concluded a handful of these. And what it essentially does is that it means that China and Australia trans transact all their trade now 
with the renminbi and the Aussie dollar. They don't do it in US dollars. This cuts currency conversion costs, but it's also symbolically important because, as I say, China's concluded very few of these, and it's seen as a kind of statement that countries are getting a lot closer to China economically. And we've seen recently an ongoing kind of debate about, uh, about how close Australia is to, to China economically. The Strategic Partnership Agreement served to strengthen the argument of those in this country, particularly, who believe that Australia can't have continuing strong economic ties with China without developing a more intimate political and strategic relationship with Beijing. This maps closely to the belief that Australia must do all it can to accommodate China's rise as a great power. And of course, this is Hugh White's thesis. Uh, and this includes seeking to persuade the US to negotiate a power-sharing arrangement with Beijing to avoid conflict. And I, I think what we're seeing at the moment with some of the controversy over um, this kind of drift of European powers into the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which of course is being bankrolled by Beijing, uh, Australia is on a tipping point, I think, of becoming part of that. The Americans are now finding themselves isolated on that issue with Japan as the only two countries who, who remain resolutely opposed. Um, so I do think we're seeing a kind of realignment in the economic sphere. Whether this is uh, Hughes' kind of thesis coming to pass or not, well, you know, that, that's a moot point. So the Abbott government inherited a, uh, an Australia-China relationship that was characterised by increasing engagement on non-economic issues, but one that was still largely defined by Chinese demand for Australian natural resources. I mean, that's basically the, the nub of the economic relationship. Um, China wants Australian iron ore, it wants coal, it wants liquefied natural gas, it also wants education for its young people, but you know, largely it's about resources, resource commodities. The political relationship, however, took a, took a direct hit early on after the government entered office. Um, Beijing's declaration in November 2013 of an air defence identification zone, the 80s, in the East China Sea, provoked major unease among regional states and led the US to immediately challenge the zone by flying two B-52s uh, straight through it without informing Beijing. While Australia was not directly affected by the 80s declaration, the Abbott government quickly condemned it and publicly called in the Chinese ambassador, publicly called in the Chinese ambassador in Canberra to make its views known. Beijing's response was swift and to the point. It saw no reason why Australia was meddling in an issue that was none of its business. In taking this position, Australia had, in the words of the Chinese Foreign Minister, Wang Yi, uh, Australia had, quote, jeopardised bilateral mutual trust and affected the sound growth of bilateral relations. And of course, this is Julie Bishop's first foreign, uh, meeting uh, with her, ca her counterpart as part of the foreign and strategic dialogue process agreed under the strategic partnership. Boy, she must have been ruining that agreement. Um, photos tell, every picture tells a story, and this one really does tell a story. This was the media conference where Wang Yi basically read out that line, and that line had clearly come down from on high. Australia had jeopardised bilateral mutual trust and affected the sound growth of bilateral relations. This was a dressing down from uh, the region's biggest power. And this wasn't helped, uh, that is Australia's position in Beijing's eyes, by Prime Minister Abbott's earlier reference to Japan as, quote, an ally in his justification of Australia's position on the 80s declaration. These comments had been preceded in October by Abbott's heartfelt, if ill-advised, 
public observation that Australia has no better friend in the region than Japan. Yet despite the Abbott government's decision to tilt towards Japan and Northeast Asia, relations with China actually improved markedly in 2014. Australia's leading role in the search for the missing Malaysia airliner MH370, the majority of passengers were from China, elicited genuine expressions of gratitude during Prime Minister Abbott's visit to Beijing in April that year. Most significant of all, however, was the conclusion in November of a landmark FTA with China. This followed the Australia-South Korea FTA signed earlier in the year and took place the same month that Australia concluded a bilateral FTA with China. Uh, the so-called Chafta Agreement was particularly significant for the Australian economy. China accounts, as I say, for one-fifth of Australia's total trade, and while much of the focus has been on the massive scale of resource exports to China, the Chafta was crucial in opening up new markets in major growth areas, including financial services and agriculture. More broadly, the FTA with China essentially invalidated the argument that Australia can't oppose Beijing on political issues and enjoy an intimate economic relationship with China. In the contemporary context, when we, when we talk about the Australia-Indonesia relationship, at the official level, it's actually pretty close. The two countries have concluded a range of uh, joint declarations, including the Lombok Declaration in 2006, which was uh, significant. These joint declarations have been important as a means of, as an opportunity for Australia to reassure Indonesia that it will respect its territorial integrity, one of the, key, one of the real key issues for, for Indonesian elites. Indonesia is the single largest uh, target of Australian overseas development assistance. Uh, many Indonesians study at Australian universities. And the two countries cooperate closely at the diplomatic level. Most recently, um, this has been evident uh, in uh, Jakarta and Canberra joining with South Korea, Turkey and Mexico to form MICTA. Uh, a group of self-declared middle powers intent on collaborating in international fora to build a bridge between the developed and the developing worlds. And this is a photograph of a recent uh, meeting of uh, MICTA. We know that uh, because it has a photograph of Retno Masudi, the new Indonesian foreign minister. Yet we also know that the bilateral relationship has a real edginess to it. Most recently, the pending execution of two Australians convicted of drug trafficking has triggered renewed tensions in the relationship. Sustained criticism of the Indonesian government and legal system among Australians has featured strongly. And reports of sharp exchanges between the two countries' foreign ministers, you wouldn't, you wouldn't credit it, would you, from that photo, uh, underscores that policymakers have struggled to contain the fallout from the planned executions. Economic and business ties uh, between the two countries have also suffered as a consequence. While historically elites in both countries have managed to navigate around periodic tensions in the relationship, there is a mutual wariness at the grassroots level uh, in Australia and Indonesia, which, which at times borders on distrust. At the popular level, many Indonesians perceive Australia as haughty uh, and inclined to interfere in Indonesia's internal affairs. Many of them still believe that Australia's intervention in Timor, uh, uh, leading the Interfet mission in 99, was a kind of indication that Australia has designs on breaking Indonesia up. Why, for example, is Australia allowing uh, Papuan freedom movements to, to undertake activities on Australian soil? There must be something to this. Many Australians, on the other hand, see Muslim Indonesia as a potential security threat. With terrorism usually topping the list of perceived threats, 
and as possessing features that are alien to Australia's predominantly Western culture. Tellingly, public opinion polling from one Lowy poll that Colin might care to refer to later on, public opinion poll consistently demonstrates that views from both sides are characterised by a high degree of ignorance about the other. Almost as soon as it entered office, the Abbott government found itself in serious turbulence in its relationship with Jakarta. The cause of tensions were leaked details that an Australian intelligence agency, the Australian Signals Directorate to be precise, had spied on Indonesian President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, Indonesia's First Lady and a number of the President's Cabinet colleagues. For Prime Minister Abbott and his colleagues, this was a legacy issue. The spying had occurred under the former Rudd government. Despite an angry public reaction from the Indonesian President himself, perhaps tellingly over Twitter, um, the new Australian government was unapologetic with Abbott stating blandly that the purpose of Australian intelligence activities was, quote, to help our friends and allies, not to harm them. This incident had occurred in a context of resentment in Indonesia over the Abbott government's hardline policy and, frankly, megaphone diplomacy in relation to turning back asylum seeker boats transiting through Indonesian waters. By the time Abbott and Yudhoyono met in June uh, on the Indonesian uh, island of Batam, Canberra and Jakarta were keen to put the boats issue behind them and confirmed that a joint code of conduct on intelligence activities was being negotiated. By August, this code had been signed and, uh, and the Abbott government farewelled uh, SBY, who uh, was widely acknowledged as Indonesia's most pro-Australian uh, president in living memory. Finally, let's turn to Japan, the last but by no means least of the big three. And this is quite... It's quite an interesting photograph. Um, it's a five-hour flight from Canberra to the Pilbara in WA. Uh, Abbott and uh, Shinzo Abe, the Japanese um, Prime Minister, took that flight uh, on an official state visit uh, by Abe last year. Japan accounts for 20% of all the iron ore that's exported from the Pilbara. China accounts for just over 60%, so there's quite a gap. But Japan's number two in terms of the destination for iron ore, Australian iron ore. So Fortescue Metals, BHP, Rio Tinto, they all uh, have close networks and ties with Japan, just as many of the Japanese companies doing business in Queensland, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, have very close ties, very, uh, very deep investments in coal mines in this state as well. And I think the photograph, the entire visit in fact, was designed to send a very clear point, and that was that China's not the only country in town when it comes to um, Australia's economic engagement in the region. The volume of Japanese engagement is uh, significant. Now, until the conclusion of the Joint Declaration on Security Cooperation, uh, the JDSC in 2007 under the Howard government, and in fact with Shinzo Abe as Prime Minister in his first, til his first uh, term uh, in office, Relations between Japan and Australia had for most intents and purposes been pretty one-dimensional. Japan had been Australia's single largest trading partner since the late 1960s, right up until 2007, which was the year China overtook Japan as Australia's largest trading partner. In the shadow of a rising China, it was easy to forget that Japan remained far and away the single largest Asian investor in Australia and a massive consumer of coal and iron ore in particular, and increasingly liquefied natural gas. Japan is the number one customer for
for Australian LNG exports. China's number two, um, but Japan is clearly out in front on LNG, which is one of the fastest growing uh, resource exports that Australia has. The joint um, Declaration on Security Cooperation represented a watershed in the sense that it signalled a broadening of the relationship under Howard and Abe during a period where concerns about the rise of China were getting real traction in Tokyo and Canberra. The period under Labor from 2000, 2007 to 2013, while distinguished by tensions over whaling, nevertheless witnessed a continued cooperation on defence and security as well, as well as agreement in 2007 to commence negotiations on a bilateral FTA. The Abbott government signalled, that, uh, signalled early on that it was keen to develop an even closer relationship with Japan. The Prime Minister's comments citing Japan as an ally and as, quote, Australia's closest friend in Asia, comments incidentally not reciprocated in Tokyo, confirmed an ambitious agenda. The political timing for a closer relationship with Tokyo was seen as auspicious in Canberra, with the return of Shinzo Abe to the Prime Ministership, who had himself outlined a vision for a more muscular Japan in the region, including revisiting Article 9 of the Constitution. Uh, Tony Abbott and Shinzo Abe established a strong personal rapport, and I think this comes through when you talk to Japanese and Australian officials. These two guys actually hit it off. Um, similar worldviews, according to reports, a similar uh, enjoyment of sake at, um, at official dinners, um, and similar approaches to domestic reform as well, or at least Abbott Mark I, a similar approach to domestic reform, significant economic restructuring domestically. But really the headline achievement for the relationship under the Abbott government has been the conclusion of the Japan-Australia Economic Partnership Agreement, the so-called JPA. And Japanese officials were keen to emphasise that, that they wanted to call this an, an economic partnership agreement, not, an, not a free trade agreement. Those things are a dime a dozen. The Japanese, this is an economic partnership agreement and it signifies more than a kind of transactional relationship. This is an expression of the political closeness of the relationship as well. And I think that's quite significant. So the JAPA reflected a comprehensive lowering of trade and investment barriers, featuring surprisingly positive access to uh, Japanese markets for Australian agricultural products uh, along the bane of uh, Australian farmers, uh, high Japanese tariff walls. They still exist, but they're gradually being lowered. Now, the conclusion of the JAPA was accompanied by growing speculation that the Abbott government intended to bypass a competitive tender process for Australia's next-gen submarine, with a view to purchasing Japan's Soyuz-class platform to replace the Collins-class fleet. The Abbott government encouraged this speculation by talking up the, the, the attractions of the Soyuz publicly and talking down other options. In November 2014, in an extraordinary intervention, the Defence Minister, or I should say the then Defence Minister, David Johnston, Johnston, claimed that, quote, the ASC, the Australian Submarine Corporation, couldn't build a canoe. Yet by early 2015, the Abbott government had changed its position. Confronting the prospect of being deposed as Prime Minister in a party room leadership ballot, Tony Abbott reassured his South Australian colleagues, where the ASC is based, uh, who were concerned over potential job losses in that state, that the ASC would indeed be part of a tender process. Uh, according to informed government sources in, in Tokyo, 
and um, uh, it, I, sorry, according to informed government sources in Tokyo, Japanese officials felt this was a breach of commitment and took the view that for Japan to go through, this is quoting Cameron Stewart from an article in The Australian, for Japan to go through a formal selection process and lose, possibly revealing more secrets about its subs than it wants to, would amount to a loss of face. When we think of an appropriate metaphor for Australia's self-declared turn towards Asia under the Abbott government, pirouette, I think, is probably more appropriate than pivot. Despite claims by Abbott and Bishop, previous Labor governments were never really distracted from the Asia-Pacific. That said, under the Abbott government, Australia has certainly been assertive in engaging with the region, more assertive, in fact, and the conclusion of separate FTAs with three of Australia's four most important trading partners, the other one is the US, we have an FTA that was concluded in 2005, um, the conclusion of these, these three FTAs within 14 months of coming into office was a significant achievement. There's absolutely no denying that. Serious efforts on the part of high-performing Trade Minister Andrew Robb to accelerate FTA, negoti FTA negotiations with India may see the conclusion of an FTA between Canberra and New Delhi before uh, the Abbott government's first term expires, or the Turnbull government's first term expires in September 2016. There's also uh, a uh, an, uh, draft. Uh, sorry, there's also negotiations underway between uh, Australia and Indonesia on, a, on an economic partnership agreement as well. And this would complement the ASEAN Australia New Zealand FTA that was concluded about 10 years ago, I think, but someone can correct me on that. So there's more negotiations underway on FTAs. Moreover, initiatives like the new Colombo plan, designed to facilitate combined Australian university uh, student mobility and integrated work placements in the region, and a clear priority accorded to overseas development assistance to the South Pacific, um, and also Julie Bishop's been very engaged with uh, Papua New Guinea as a, as, as a clear priority too. These have also reinforced the apparent Asia-Pacific turn in Australian foreign policy under the Abbott government. However, the track record overall of the government in the region has been mixed. In particular, Prime Minister Abbott's tendency to issue statements that are not well thought through have at times confused or indeed confounded Australia's regional interlocutors. The sub-issue with Japan, I've already covered, uh, and the reference to Japan as Australia's best friend in Asia, uh, alienated both the Chinese and the South Koreans. Recently, uh, the Prime Minister's somewhat ham-fisted attempt to link Australia's large overseas development aid program to Indonesia with the fate of two convicted Australian drug traffickers angered many Indonesians at the elite and grassroots level. Indeed, Foreign Minister Bishop and Australia's diplomatic community have been kept busy troubleshooting in the region on behalf of the Prime Minister. Australia's won a number of plaudits in the region under the Abbott government. Leadership of the ongoing MH370 retrieval operation stands out. But as always, Australia needs to guard against an inherent tendency to exaggerate its influence in regional capitals. And this is something the Rudd government found out the hard way when its Asia-Pacific Security Cooperation Initiative was torpedoed uh, by ASEAN uh, in 2008. So in conclusion, Australia confronts an increasingly complex environment in Asia in the years ahead. China's rise has been far from seamless, and America's predicted relative decline is nowhere near as straightforward or as inevitable as some have assumed. The future of Japan's role in the region remains uncertain, despite a growing assertiveness in strategic policy.
and a keenness to engage more closely with like-minded states, including Australia. The Korean Peninsula appears relatively stable for the time being, although North Korea's nuclear weapons arsenal, in combination with Pyongyang's capriciousness, means that a future crisis could be just around the corner. Given its mammoth domestic challenges and its, its quite patchy reform record uh, in overcoming structural economic inefficiencies, doubts will persist about India's ability to reach its potential as a great power. In Southeast Asia, while the opening up of Myanmar presents real investment opportunities, again, particularly for the resource commodity sector in Australia, and although Australia's relations with most other ASEAN states are growing, uh, Indonesia will remain the priority country for future governments in Southeast Asia. Maintaining productive relations with Jakarta is arguably the toughest foreign policy challenge confronting Australia. No other bilateral relationship in Australia's diplomatic portfolio is subject to as many swings and as many roundabouts. More Jakarta in Australian foreign policy is no doubt a good thing. But the Abbott government will need to work hard throughout the remainder of its term in office to ensure that the quality of engagement with Indonesia, as with Asia more generally, uh, is at least as positive as the quantity. Thanks. For more information about Griffith University's research, engagement and activity in the Asia-Pacific region, visit griffith.edu.au slash Asia.